Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So, so she came running to Simon and Peter and the other disciple, that, the one that Jesus loved, and said, They, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen laying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along beside him and went behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Yes, sir. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she, she said. She said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to, to, the, my father. to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said those things to her. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Oh, thanks. Kids, I wanted you to hear uh, some of the kids who were baptized today read the text, for it is not just a story for them anymore, it is their story. Um, and I would love for you to take a Bible and turn with me uh, to John, the 20th chapter. But I'd also love for you to put something in John 20 and go with me to the Old Testament text, which is in Isaiah 25. Old Testament text, Isaiah 25. And as you turn there, so many things to try to remember today. Um, one thing I forgot as we were taking in new members today, I meant to uh, welcome Deanne Davis, who is our first person who joined the church today online. And I know that she's on with us this morning from Arizona and delighted to have Deanne as part of our church as well. Isaiah 25 verses 6 through 9, if you have it open and if you're able this morning, if you'd stand with me in honor of the Lord's word. On this mountain, the Lord of heavenly forces will prepare for all peoples a rich feast. A feast of choice wines, of select foods, rich in flavor of choice wines, well refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the veil that is veiling all peoples, the shroud enshrouding all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe tears from every face, and he will remove his people's disgrace from off the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. 
And they will say on that day, look, this is our God for whom we have waited, and he has saved us. Again, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Oh, it is so good to see you this morning. We had a wonderful group of folks at 9 o'clock as well. Talked to a number of people for whom this is your first day back in in in-person worship. And it's just delightful to get to be together, especially on this day. But as we think about this day, which is not even a debate, uh, this is the day for us as believers. The most important Sunday of the year. As we think about this day, though, sometimes I wonder kind of like what what are we doing here today? (laughs) What is this about? If you have the 20th chapter of John still open, it's interesting the way in which John begins this text. It begins with Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb early in the morning, while it's still dark, and coming to the tomb. Not a whole lot of description as to why. It appears that she's a little bit concerned that that everything's going to be okay there. But mostly John sets it up as though Mary is coming to to pay homage, to give honor, uh, to come to be near this one who has been so important to her. We're told in both uh, the Gospels of Mark and Luke that Mary Magdalene, when she encountered Jesus, was possessed, oppressed by forces of evil. And that when she encountered Christ, Christ delivered her from that bondage and from that brokenness and that she began to follow Jesus. And so to have seen him crucified on that Friday and to have seen him buried in that garden tomb, it seems as though she is getting up early in the morning to go and to to pay honor to this one who has been so important to her. We we get that, right? Um, It's not unusual for those of us who've lost people significant in our lives to go to the cemetery, to the place where they are buried or where their ashes were scattered. And we go there to, to be near to that memory, to be close to that presence. Even though we know there's, there's still no breath in that body, we just want to be close to what, what has come before. I know for some of you who lost a spouse or a child or a parent that, or another loved one, you, it's not unusual for you to go there and to, to want to be present. And so we see Mary Magdalene kind of going there. And I have this sense that for many in the world, and maybe even some of you here today, at some level, that's what you think we're doing today. That there is a teaching, a religion, a faith, certain practices that have been important to us. And so we get dressed up on especially a day like today, and you look really good. Um, some of you who maybe grew up in this, tr- in this kind of faith or in the tradition, you're used to Easter Sunday being the dress-up. So I wore my pink tie. I'm very, I, I'm secure enough to wear my pink tie on, on Easter. A kid during the 9 o'clock service shouted out when I said that, ooh, um, but I, I still feel okay about it. Um, <laughs> my sister's here with us today and my niece, Laura, and... When my sister and I were little, my mom would often, my mother's doing this right now, but uh, she should, the pictures are awful. Um, 
But my mother would, would make matching clothes for my sister and I, right? And there's just pictures of year after year of us standing in front of whatever church mom and dad were pastoring at the time. But us in our Easter best, right? And my hair in various phases of, uh, um, but... I had the sense that for some in the world, they, they look at what we're doing today, and again, maybe even some here, that in the same way that we think about a widower, widower who, who would go to a graveside day after day after day after day, week after week after week, to pay homage, that, that we got dressed up and we came today because um, this is what grandma does every year, or this is what we do because we're trying to keep a kind of memory alive that we sense is fading. And there's a kind of sweetness about it and a kind of dignity about participating in those practices. But, but like the disciples who two days later seem to have begun to try to figure out what it means to move on with their life, at some point it ceases to be sweet and profound, but it begins to be, in some ways, just kind of sad. And I feel like at times folks look at what we're doing today and feel like it's, it's sweet and nice that you're trying to keep that, that memory alive, but, but the real stuff of life is really going on somewhere else, and, and the real work of the world is, is in the stuff of the world. If I had time this morning and, um, and I had a big giant whiteboard, which someday I'm going to get, um, if I had a big giant whiteboard up here, I would love to, to play around this morning with a contrast between John chapter 11 and John chapter 20. And so if you have your Bible, you might want to look at John chapter 11 for just a moment. John chapter 11 is the story of the raising of Lazarus. And one of the fascinating things about this story that we heard read for us in John chapter 20, the resurrection of Jesus, and the Lazarus story in John chapter 11, is that there's a whole lot of similarities between the two and a whole lot of contrasts. So in John chapter 11, for example, the text also centers on a character named Mary. Now, a different Mary. Chapter 20 centers on Mary Magdalene, but chapter 11 centers around Mary, the brother of Lazarus. But there's a Mary at the heart of both stories. And in John chapter 20, the disciples rush to get to the tomb. When Mary Magdalene goes and tells them, they go sprinting to the tomb. In fact, some scholars think it's quite fascinating the way that John narrates it. It's almost as though it's a race, and clearly John won. And the text even kind of reads funny in the terms of John, the younger and the beloved, ends up at the tomb first, and Peter, the brash one, just enters right in once he gets there. John has a little more, you know, I'll wait for a moment. But these two disciples come racing to the tomb, but in John chapter 11, Jesus just takes his time getting to Bethany. The disciples are a little worried that he's, he should speed things up. Lazarus is sick. gets there four days after Lazarus has already died. Thomas is a foil in both stories. In John chapter 11, when Jesus says, let's go back to Bethany, Thomas, who doesn't show up very often in the Gospels, Thomas speaks up in John chapter 11 and says, oh, great, yeah, that's a wonderful idea. Let's go back to Bethany so they can stone us to death. <laughs> really good. 
Yeah, that's in the Greek, by the way. That you get, if you know the original, you can pick up the attitude a little bit. But in John chapter 20, we didn't get to this part. But if you read the rest of the chapter later this week, it is Thomas again who shows up in John chapter 20. Only this time, after the disciples have seen Christ and believe, Thomas says, "Yeah, I'll believe it when I get to touch him." In both John chapter 11 and John chapter 20, there's a discussion of the resurrection. In John chapter 11, when Jesus finally shows up, Mary says, if you'd only been here, right, you could have done something to care for him. And Jesus says, well, he will be raised. And, and Mary responds, well, yeah, he'll be, he'll be raised on the last day. It's a very interesting verse, chapter 11, verse 24, where Mary says, oh, yeah, on the, on the last day, the day of the resurrection. I mean, Mary, very typical of many Jewish people have this expectation that on the last day of human history, the beginning of the new creation, the resurrection will happen. And she says, oh yeah, Lazarus will be raised on the last day. To which Jesus responds, oh Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. We'll come back to that. And in John chapter 11, there are tears. John chapter 11 may be not just famous for Lazarus coming out of the tomb, but for the shortest verse in the scripture, right? Jesus wept. But there are tears and smells, fears that, oh, you don't want him now. He's going to... And really fascinating, when Lazarus comes out of the tomb, he has to be helped out of his grave clothing. He has to be helped out of the wraps around his body. Loose him and let him go, Jesus says. But here's the key point. Lazarus comes back from the dead, much like the widow's son with Elijah or Jairus' daughter earlier in the Gospels. But he is not resurrected. He is resuscitated. But he is not resurrected. He dies of something else. And so if we think about John 11, we may think today that, that what we're doing here today is actually a kind of a form of John 11 Christianity. So we want to push back and say, we're doing far more than just kind of keeping a sentimental memory alive. But what we're doing here is we are a, a people who have gathered together that are committed to working together in the pains and the smells and the deathliness of life. And we're doing that and kind of trying to help each other out in the struggle of this road to life. And we have hopes that every once in a while, God will break in in some miraculous way, like a three-pointer at the buzzer. I hope I didn't ruin that for you. <laughs> but God will break in every once in a while, but it'll be kind of random and you never quite know. And so in the meantime, we're just going to do our best. Hang in there, grit our teeth, work hard until someday at the end, hopefully God will sort this whole thing out. I'm convinced this morning, actually, if we were honest with ourselves, we would probably fall in one of those two categories. That today is participating in some kind of sweet memory, but the reality of our lives is really lived in some other space. Or maybe, 
or maybe we are John 11 kind of community. And it's great. It's, at some level, it's, it's so much better than the other. That we're trying to kind of work together and help each other in the hard stuff of life. And maybe even some others too. But, but here's why I wanted you to hear the Old Testament reading today from Isaiah 25. It's because God is never satisfied with calling God's people simply to try to do our best and persevere until someday he can sort it out. Even in the midst of fears about going into exile, the prophet can stand up and say, on this mountain, God is going to move because this is what God does. God gathers and makes feasts for the nations. And God leads and guides and empowers. And there's a beautiful picture in Isaiah 25. It's this picture of like this giant whale coming and swallowing, swallowing up a smaller fish. God is going to come and swallow up death. And the shroud that covers and breaks the people. And so if you'll go back to John 20 this morning, I want you to see not just the contrast to John 11, but, but the radicalness of what John is inviting us to believe today. So in John 20, Mary Magdalene shows up, and it's the first day of the week. That's very important. It's why we're here on the wrong day, if you will. The Sabbath is Saturday. God's people for generations had known what it meant to honor the Sabbath day, Saturday. But we're here on the first day of the week because this text says Mary showed up, and it was the first day of the week when she encounters the risen Lord. And when she shows up, remember in Lazarus, they have to come and take all the grave clothes off of him. But when Mary shows up at the tomb, the clothes are laying in the tomb. And even very specifically, John says that the cloths that wrapped Jesus' head are not just kind of laying there, but they've been folded up as though Christ made the bed before he left. Like it's all there. It, he does not have to be freed from them. He's broken those bonds of death. And two angels are present when Mary looks in, one at the head and one at the foot. Just a little bonus teaching here. Some of the early church fathers and mothers saw in this text, when Mary looked in, a kind of vision of the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember the cherubim on, on both sides of the mercy seat? That when she looks in, she sees the embodiment of all that God has done in his covenantal love for God's people. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it's so cool when she turns and encounters Jesus. She thinks he's a gardener. And you're not very excited about that. But if you go back a couple of verses into chapter 19, it's very important to John that we know that this is a new tomb in a garden. There are gardens everywhere in John, first of all. But there's something about Mary encountering the one in the garden, bringing things back to where they were supposed to be. And Christ is present. And as we see, as you move further in the gospel, almost every time two or three are gathered in Christ's name, boom, he's there in the midst of them speaking peace. So Christ is present, but here's what's so cool. She wants to grab onto and hold onto that present. And Christ says, you can't hold on to me. As I shared with you a few Easter's ago, I had a seminary friend who used to love to call all of his friends on Easter and say, Christ is on the loose. 
beware. She wants to hold on to him, but Christ is on the loose. It is a presence that is in our midst, but a presence that we cannot control or contain. And the conversation is not only about the resurrection, but Christ says, you can't hold on to me because I am about to ascend. It is about the kingdom of this world becoming the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he reigns forever and ever. And out of this, then Mary becomes the first witness to the resurrection. So what are we doing here today? Are we dressing up to keep quaint memories alive? Are we here to do our best in the smelly yuckiness of life, hoping that God will at some point intervene, but just trying to hang on till the end? No. <laughs> we are citizens of the eighth day. The first day of a new creation. We are those who are convinced that the resurrected presence of Christ is in our midst, but also on the loose. We're not doing our best until we can get to heaven. Rather, we are those living by faith in the reality of a God who is making all things new. And we are those empowered now to be witnesses of a new creation. My friend David was texting me this morning to remind me that Jesus is on the loose, but also to encourage me a little. He knew I was preaching on John 20, so he sent me a, a quote from the great missiologist, a guy named Leslie Newbegin. And it was so good, I, I threw it in. Newbegin says this, Mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is more like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout which is not lethal but life-giving. The story of the empty tomb cannot be fitted into our contemporary worldview or indeed any worldview except one of which it is the starting point. That is indeed the whole point. It's a boundary event, the beginning of a new creation, as mysterious to human reason as creation itself. But accepted in faith, it becomes the starting point for a whole new way of understanding our human experience. In the next few weeks, as we go into this Easter season, we will think about texts from the book of Acts, some of the gospel texts. But we'll think about them because what I want you to see is what Mary Magdalene and Peter and John and the other apostles began to experience and believe was that they encountered the risen Lord that a whole new creation had broken in. They were not just trying to do their best until the end, but something radically new had broken in. It is the eighth day, the first day of a new creation. And because of that, then they went into the world and the craziest thing happened. They were convinced that all things had been made new. So for example, we'll see in Acts as they go into worship, everything was now a mess. In their old Jewish life, it was so nice. Women got left out. That was being sarcastic, by the way. Hold. Just the learned men got to get together to fight about this stuff. 
in the resurrected Christ, the first witness to the resurrection is a woman who goes proclaiming the gospel that Christ has been raised. And now the church is a mess of men and women and young and old trying to figure out how to do this together. Because a new creation that breaks down those boundaries has been eliminated in the resurrected Lord. And as we'll see in Acts, they begin to understand themselves no longer as just people trying to muddle through, but as family connected to each other, a body where the ear and the eye needed each other, the hand and the foot had to have each other. And so, as we'll see in Acts, Luke can say crazy things like there was no poor among them. Why? Because they had joined a political party? No, because they saw themselves as family and you don't let your family starve. You don't let your brother or sister stay on the margins. But a whole new way of seeing and operating and living became part of the new church, of the church's life. And they went into the world radicalized to believe that boundaries that existed between races and nations and ethnicities and languages and boundaries that had been drawn on maps through human history were no longer the defining identity of their lives, but now they were one in Christ Jesus. And so there's no longer the boundary between Jew and Greek. And so now they are this body that draws together as it happened on Pentecost, all of these nations and languages and tongues as a reflection of the beautiful diversity of God's creativeness. And not because they were children of the enlightenment. Because they had been talked into some philosophy. They became that. Because they believed that the one who had died had rose, risen again. And that there was a new spirit set loose in the world that was empowering them to be a body in the world that the world just simply doesn't understand in the ways that it plays games with each other. And they were called to go and be witnesses to that reality. That's what we're doing here today. Can I tell you one of my favorite days since I've been here in the last six years? And I promise you, that's a really long list, but this is in the top five. It was a day I was sitting behind my desk and I realized, oh, yes, the initials, Napa College Church, NCC. We could use those for new creation community. Brain matter on the wall. I was so excited, still I'm so excited. Because we are not here today dressing up and trying to keep some dying memory alive. If we are, by the way, Paul says this, how sad. For if Christ has not been raised from the dead, stay in your happy pants. That's in the Greek. Uh, if you 
Christ has not been risen from the dead. We should let this memory go. Go home, Mary Magdalene, for there's life to be lived elsewhere. And we are not a John 11 community. A community that's nice, <laughs> trying to encourage each other, willing to enter into hard stuff of life with each other. Oh, that's good. Hoping God breaks in on occasion. Waiting for God to reconcile it all at the end. That's nice, but so far from the vision that Christ has for us to be a people who every time we gather together encounter the living Christ. Again, it's why we're here on the wrong day. We're here on the eighth day, the first day of a new creation. Oh, and by the way, next week we'll be back together on the eighth day. Same time. A community of the new creation. Now I have to check my calendar, but I think two weeks from that, a week from that, so two weeks from today, I think we'll be back again together, again. On the eighth day, first day of a new creation. In fact, why don't we just make a habit of that? We'll just gather week after week on the eighth day as citizens participating in the first day of a new creation. For the reason we're here today is because we serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. You can't hold on to him. He's kind of loose. I know that he is living whatever people say. For I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer in just the time I need him. He's always near. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with us. He talks with us along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation. A new creation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. I know that he lives within my heart. But you ask me how I know he lives because he has put us together as a people empowered to be his new creation. And do you know how the world will know he lives? Because we will be a new creation community empowered by his spirit. Not gritting our teeth and working harder, but empowered by his spirit be the foretaste of his new creation. God, help us today. I thank you that we are not here today just simply to keep a memory alive, nor are we here today just to work harder, but we are here today because the one who died has risen again. And so we pray that you would empower us today to be your people. What we are talking about today takes faith that only your spirit can impart to us. When we see Mary Magdalene and John and Peter and the other apostles, as we see them empowered by the presence of the resurrected Christ, we see them loving enemies, willing to lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel. Embracing those on the margins, caring for those who are poor. Not simply out of a 
desire to be nice, but out of the reality and conviction that a new creation has come, that death has been swallowed up. And so we pray for that kind of empowerment for us today. Each time we gather on this eighth day, the first day of a new creation, not only remind us, but empower us to be what you've called us to be. Help us to be a reflection of the body of Christ in the world. And may we be witnesses, proclaimers, and may we embody together the reality of a new creation. For we pray this in the resurrected one's name. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. Would you stand with us?